You're listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atia. Let's head to the New England Aquarium on the Boston waterfront to meet with a right whale savior. Right whales got their name because in the bad old days, they were the right whales to hunt. They have lots of blubber, swim relatively slowly, and float when killed. But because they were so right, they've barely survived as a species. Today, there are only about 350 right whales in the North Atlantic, and there would be even fewer if it weren't for the efforts of Scott Kraus, the Vice President for Research at the New England Aquarium. Thanks largely to the aquarium's right whale research project, which he heads, ships now slow down when sailing through right whale habitat, or when possible, avoid it altogether. These new restrictions have cut down dramatically on the number of collisions, which are usually fatal for the whale. But as Scott Krause explains, distinct challenges remain for the right whale, which inhabits an increasingly urban ocean. Scott, why did you choose to study the right whale? What is it about this particular whale that speaks to you? Hmm. Well, I've been studying whales and dolphins in college and then after college and had the opportunity to do some surveys all over the East Coast and it became clear that the right whale was the one that had the lowest numbers and was most in need of attention. And so I was quite fascinated with them and then when I started working for the aquarium in 1980 we did some surveys in the Bay of Fundy and discovered uh, actually a large number of right whales and at the time, most people had thought they were on their way to extinction. So it was quite a, a quite exciting time. And uh, from that, it just led into a larger, larger program. We started working on them at that point. Scott, in a book called The Urban Whale, North Atlantic Right Whales at the Crossroads, which you co-edited with Rosalind Rowland, you describe right whales as ungainly creatures, and elsewhere in the book they're described as extremely powerful, uncooperative, and possibly dangerous. What is the right whale personality? They are, uh, what's a good way to put this? When we think of whales, especially, if you're a whale watcher, they tend to have sort of stereotypes like humpbacks or playful and breach out of the water and play with their flippers and come over to whale watching boats. Finbacks are really fast and you hardly ever see them. They race by you. Minky whales are tiny and elusive. Um, but the right whales, which most whale watchers have never seen, are like a bus. They're kind of rotund, uh, relatively slow, which is why one of the reasons they were called the right whales because you could catch them in a rowboat. And they're, they're not beautiful. They're not sleek and streamlined. They're a fast right whale is doing, you know, 10 miles an hour. On the other hand, they are curious and they have, uh, you know, really interesting social interactions and they're a real challenge. Very mysterious animals, hard to, hard to study. Some people say they look like sea monsters. Well, when I was originally started work in the Bay of Fundy, I was looking through the archives of the local newspaper to see if there was any evidence that right whales had been there consistently. And I found a beautiful drawing made by a fisherman of a right whale skim feeding at the surface with its mouth wide open and it it does look very odd they look like they're upside down and its back submerged and its tail sticking out of the water so it really did look like something serpentine with a huge terrible mouth on the front end of it and he drew a beautiful picture of it 
and then underneath the caption was sea monster seen in the Bay of Fundy. So yes, they do look <laughs> like sea monsters, you know. <laughs> Scott, let's distinguish for a moment between the North Atlantic right whale and other right whales that do not share habitat, the southern right whale and the North Pacific right whale. For the North Atlantic right whale, which is the whale you've studied, its habitat is basically along the coast of the eastern United States. Can you describe it? Well, right whales tend to live, at least they tend to give birth in coastal waters. In the case of the North Pacific, for example, they're primarily open ocean animals. We don't know much about them. There's probably only a few hundred left alive. In the southern hemisphere, right whales traverse across the southern oceans to the Antarctic to feed but they give birth up in the coastal zones of South America, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. But in the North Atlantic, we have the unusual situation where right whales are found literally within 50 miles of shore from Florida to Maine most of their lives. Now there's a small group of animals that go somewhere else. About a third of the population disappears in the summer month and we don't know where they go. So even though we think of them as kind of coastal to the uh, east coast of the United States and Canada, they do make excursions out to other places in the North Atlantic. You're listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atia, and I'm speaking with Scott Kraus, the Vice President for Research at the New England Aquarium and the head of its right whale research project. As you know, Scott, shipping strikes have been the chief cause of death uh, for white whales in the past, but now really the key issue is entanglement with fishing gear which can lead to mutilations, lethal infections, starvation, or drowning if they, if they can't get free. What is being done about this? Well, there's a lot of people working on the entanglement issue. I expect that it will preoccupy researchers and fishermen for the next 10 years. It's a classic conflict in conservation. You have thousands of fishermen with lots of gear in the water. Some fishermen fish you know, up to 800 traps in the lobster industry. And over 70% of all right whales have been entangled in fishing gear at one time or another. And we know that from the scarring on the, on the animals. So that's where we're at. We're trying to figure out, there's lots of people, engineers and rope manufacturers and fishermen and biologists working on developing either gear modifications or changes to the way gear is fished that would reduce the probability of entanglements. You yourself are involved with efforts to devise whale-safe fishing gear, such as rope that's easier to break or illuminated. Is that process going reasonably well? We are still working on rope that would be more visible in the water column. Uh, the weak rope, we, we had this idea that if we went back to weaker rope that whales would get free, but fishermen who tested it found that they lost more gear that way, and we don't want more ghost gear in the water either. So. That's a possible avenue of research, but it's not going very far at the moment. The better visibility rope simply is based upon the assumption that if right whales can see what they're about to run into, that they would in fact reduce the probability that they'll run into it. These ropes get entangled around their flippers, their tail, perhaps into their mouths if they're entangled while their mouths are open you yourself have been part of this whale disentanglement process where people go out in little boats and really try to cut the ropes free. Uh, what is that process like? The whole disentanglement program, which is really just a band-aid to the problem, you know, 
no one really wants to be doing this disentanglement stuff because, in fact, you're up close and personal to 50-foot, 50 50-ton 50 animal, and you have to get close to cut these lines away. And the Center for Coastal Studies, who's pioneered most of the disentanglement protocols, has had animals actually turn on them, and it looks like they're really lashing out with their tail or their head trying to get the guys in the boat. And that's not a comfortable place to be. We don't want anybody to get killed. So it's a bit risky, um, but when you're up close into the action, you're not, you're, you just make sure that you're really well prepared to stay out of trouble. So. <laughs> that sounds rather impossible if you are right there in trouble. Well, you have to think about it this way. If you get close to the body, they can't actually, they don't have any hands, so they can't reach back and scratch you off. The risky part is around the tail, and the tail can swing back and forth from side to side and go up and down almost 70 or 80 degrees. So you stay forward or behind the tail. You don't get, you don't get in that zone of lethality. <laughs> what about the eye of the whale? Do you feel you communicate with the whale through its eyes? Uh, no. The eye is in a right whale. When the whale is blowing, the eye is eight feet underwater. In the case, most whales, their eyes are well underwater when you're up close to them. And uh, what you're communicating is you're, you're communicating an aggressive action. When you're disentangling, the whale sees you as an aggressive pain in the butt. And you are, you know, because you're riding up close to it. And if your motor is on, you're making noise. If your motor's not on, then you sound, maybe you're like a predator. You're being stealthy. I mean. There's lots of reasons for whales not to like us close in boats. It always boggles my mind about why whales who have been injured by boats would allow one to come alongside or even show an interest in a boat. Why don't they capsize these things more often? Well, they could. They tend not to like to touch uh, hard objects. They have a very sensitive skin in spite of the size of the animal. and so. Even calves, you know, who are curious and haven't had any bad experiences with boats or people, tend not to like, they, they may come up to a boat, but they won't touch it. There's a great photo in the urban whale of a dog who apparently is good at detecting whale feces out in the water, and you can test the feces to learn all sorts of things about the whale, but this dog is staring <laughs> at this whale calf a few feet away in the water. And I think you actually were there when yeah. that photo was that, taken. Fargo was the dog. And that was the first time Fargo had ever seen a whale. Because most of the time, you know, he was trained on whale feces, but he never saw the whale. And then <laughs> when you're out in the field, you're not working around whales necessarily. You're working around the scent cone from the feces. So by the time you get to the feces, the whale is long gone. So Fargo had never seen a whale. And we were out working, and this whale, came, this calf came up to the boat and started circling the boat. And Fargo was... Uh, well, in the photo, he looks pretty intent. Yeah, he was very interested. Like, <laughs> what is that? But we did have... A, we had another dog who was actually scared of whales. So that wasn't so good. Yeah. The whale was happy hanging out, apparently. We have to remember that these young mammals are pretty much similar around the world. So baby kittens, puppies, and baby whales have a tendency to be curious. And it gets them in trouble sometimes, but that doesn't keep them from doing this. So that's what happens frequently when these calves are about 
six to eight months old, their mother is frequently feeding at depth, and the calf is left at the surface to fend for itself. And so the calf will start playing with seaweed or logs or spare boats. So they come <laughs> over and they look around, they try to look at what you are, and they tend not to touch you, but they want to see what you are. You're listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atia, and I'm speaking with Scott Kraus, the Vice President for Research at the New England Aquarium and the head of its Right Whale Research Project. As you know, Scott, in addition to collisions with ships and entanglement with fishing gear, whales are also suffering from not just toxic chemical pollution, but noise pollution. Because their habitats in such busy commercial waters, they can barely hear each other anymore. How are they managing under these circumstances? Well, it is a real problem, and it's one that's really just come to our attention in the last 10 years. You know, there's a lot of noise underwater. And the whales have adapted a little bit, we think, by changing the frequency of their sounds and the amplitude of those sounds to counteract the rising tide of noise. But they may also, in places that are really bad, they may simply abandon the habitat. We just don't know yet. Do you see or do you imagine that whales might get lost or stranded because they can't hear each other? It's possible. I think that whales have multiple sensory abilities to navigate. You know, you can tell at nighttime when you're approaching a city because the sky begins to glow. So it's possible if you think about, instead of light, if you think about sound the same way, whales will know when they're approaching the east coast of the United States because the noise will begin to glow. You'll have more, you'll have more noise. And I think that uh, whales may use that a little bit to their advantage. They also can use passive listening. So all the noise that we're making actually creates a different sound in shallow water than it does in deep water. Creates a different sound on hard bottom than it does on sandy or muddy bottom. So they can probably navigate by sort of listening to the echoes of all the noise that we make. And they can listen to the echoes of noise that other animals make. And they are probably really good and very light sensitive to changes in the length of day and when the days get shorter and all that stuff. So they have a lot of things that they can use to find their way around the ocean. And sound is not the only one. It's probably one of the most important ones, but it's, um, they may, in fact, be using some of the sounds to their advantage. Hmm. Well, that's a cheery thought. Maybe. <laughs> Scott, you get to spend a lot of time with your team each summer in the Bay of Fundy off of New Brunswick observing right whales. And over the years, you've developed a tremendous catalog of each and every North Atlantic right whale that's known to exist. Do you become attached to individual whales? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you, you know, you're supposed to have this scientific objectivity and stay somewhat detached from your animals, but I think there are a group of us who have been working together now for over 20 years, and all of us have become attached to these animals, partly because you see them every year and you see them through different times in their life cycle. Uh, they're in courtship groups or they're having babies or whatever. And it's not exactly like a pet. You don't develop a rapport with them, but you do become invested in their lives. And because of the nature of the species and its sort of dire situation, you do get invested in the idea that, you know, you guys need to get out there and have some babies and we need to cop stop killing you. That's sort of the, the team's idea is that, well, we'll do what we can to keep from killing you, but you have to get busy, make more. <laughs> 
And so we went through a very hard period in the 1990s where we were losing two to three right wells a year. And half of them we knew, you know, either knew by name or by number. And it got to be to the point where a lot of the people just wouldn't go to the beach anymore. Other necropsy teams would do it, but the people who had been working on the catalog or working in the field wouldn't go. It was just too painful. What about you? Well, you know, it's painful, but on the other hand, we decided in the 90s to make every right whale kind of an icon of the problems that they were facing. And so you have to go there, you have to show up, you have to wit bear witness, and you have to talk about it to the public. So you have to go to these things. You have to figure out what killed them, and you have to tell the story. And um, yeah, it's hard. In the final chapter of The Urban Whale, which you co-wrote, you say that the survival of the right whale is now the direct responsibility of, quote, all of us who eat seafood or purchase foreign autos, petroleum, appliances, and other products that arrive on ships. I'm afraid I am guilty of all of the above. And so am I. So where does that leave us? Well, I think that it should lead us to ask questions about how we live our lives. So when we can buy things that are domestic, we're not engaged in supporting the high-speed shipping industry. I mean, I've even talked to the shipping industry about, you know, what if you were to create whale-safe ships, you know? And you could advertise that. And I think that the case with fishing, I mean, I always prefer to buy, for example, local seafood, because I know the guys who are catching it. Most of these guys are doing the best job they can with regard to whale-safe gear. So you have to be just aware that there's a lot of people trying to fix the problem and... Support those people. Yeah, support the people that are doing that. I, I mean, I'm guilty of all the same things. You know, a lot of my colleagues don't eat seafood at all because they don't want to support the fishing industry. But I, frankly, couldn't give it up. So, you know, I, I think that you live with these internal hypocrisies all the time, and all of us do if you examine your life carefully. We all drive cars. We all you know, we live in an oil economy, we do all these things. We're all responsible for the Gulf oil spill in some way. It's not a pretty thing to hear or think about, but that's in fact the case. And until we change our behavior or change the way in which we do business, then we will always be faced with those kind of conflicts. Scott Krause, thank you very much for your time and for your efforts on behalf of all these marine species. Thank you. You've been listening to Scott Krauss, Vice President for Research at the New England Aquarium and co-editor of The Urban Whale, North Atlantic Right Whales at the Crossroads. I'm Jenny Atiyah. Thanks for joining us.